And now we move to Indiana University and two more women with breast cancer. The first, as presented by her oncologist, Kathy Miller, was trying to make a difficult decision about whether to receive adjuvant chemotherapy. She is a 52-year-old woman who had routine mammographic screening that identified an area of abnormality. She had a biopsy that found a moderately differentiated invasive ductal carcinoma. It also had further testing to show that it was strongly ERNPR positive and HER2 negative. She underwent lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsies. Her sentinel nodes were negative. Lumpectomy removed the 1.5 centimeter tumor with histology exactly as you would have expected from her biopsy results. Initially, very close margins on the lumpectomy specimen, so she returned to the operating room for re-excision that found no other disease and made certain that she had adequate margins. She was referred to me to talk about systemic therapy and what other treatment she ought to have. So I guess she really fits into maybe the biggest subset we have right now, looking at ER, HER2, and nodal status, which is a woman who's ER positive, which is most of the breast cancer patients, HER2 negative, most of breast cancer patients, node negative because of mammography, most of breast cancer patients. And then within that subset, she has a tumor that's not huge and not small, 1.5 centimeters. Hands down, the most common situation we see, and particularly, I think, the most common situation we see in women routinely being screened with mammograms. And of course, with the ER positivity, she's going to be getting hormonal therapy, but the key question is chemotherapy. And if this was 2000, she'd be getting chemotherapy, but it's not 2000. Absolutely. If this was 2000, she would hear nothing more than at least two randomized trials have found a significant improvement in disease-free and overall survival by the addition of cytotoxic chemotherapy. Improvements that are not huge, but that are not zero and have been confirmed in more than one study as well as confirmed in the overview analysis. You need chemotherapy. End of story. Thankfully, it's not 2,000, and she is exactly the group of women that the Oncotype was designed for to really help us separate who truly needs chemotherapy and gets a much bigger benefit from chemotherapy and who really doesn't need chemotherapy and would be best treated with hormone therapy alone. So what happened with her? So we talked about the older trials and the improvement with chemotherapy and how that made decisions very difficult for everyone in that situation. We talked a lot about the Oncotype test and how it was developed and how it could help us facilitate decisions. And she was also eligible to participate in the TaylorX trial, which I described to patients as a trial with two major goals in mind. The first is to really help us figure out, do patients with intermediate risk scores need chemotherapy? Do they benefit from chemotherapy? And what is the difference in that group by adding chemotherapy? So in the TaylorX trial, these women get their Oncotype scores. If they're in the intermediate range, they're then randomized to a suggestion to have chemotherapy added or to be treated with hormone therapy alone. So over time, as those women are followed, we can see what really is the difference. But its other goal actually has to do with women in the low-risk group. So in TaylorX, if you have a low-risk score, you're essentially told, hooray for you. You don't need chemotherapy. You're treated with hormone therapy alone, and those women are followed. And we expect very few of them to ever have trouble with their breast cancer. But there will be a few. And we've now stored away their tumors, and that will allow us to go back and try to identify what's different about this 5 or 6% of women. How could we adjust 
the test so that those women would be captured, essentially make version 2.0 better. Because ultimately, what we would love to have is a test that says, you women need chemotherapy, you women don't, and it gets everybody in the right bin the first time around. And Oncotype clearly doesn't do that. It's a huge improvement from where we were before, but it's also clearly a first pass at this. So the TaylorX trial is to try to take us the next step along the way in making even better treatment decisions. So what was her recurrence score? So she did enroll in the TaylorX trial. Her recurrence score was 22. So she was in the intermediate group, both by the TaylorX criteria and their cutoffs, as well as by the cutoffs used in the original assay. She was randomized to hormone therapy alone. We talked about her score and what that meant and our uncertainty about the benefits of chemotherapy. She was quite comfortable receiving hormone therapy alone, and I was quite comfortable treating her with hormone therapy alone. She's actually receiving hormone therapy with an aromatase inhibitor. She was postmenopausal at her initial diagnosis, and she's getting her hormone therapy and an aromatase inhibitor on a separate clinical trial. So she fits into classic 2010 medicine. We know, again, from our patterns of care studies that by far the vast majority of women with this type of tumor, particularly with this size, you know, 1.5 centimeters, you know, when it gets real, real small, half centimeter, I'm not so sure people always use Oncotype, real big, over four or five centimeters, not so sure people, but certainly in in this range, most women are going to get Oncotype. How do you make the decision? Do you generally send it on all patients or do you sit down and kind of get a feel for them in terms of what they think about chemo before you send it? Well, I don't send it on all patients, but I actually think Oncotype is underutilized. I hear a lot of people say that they send Oncotype when they have some uncertainty, that if they're really sure someone's going to have a low score or they're really sure it's going to be a high score, they don't send a test. But when this has actually been looked at, about 10% of the time, our predictions are simply wrong. So if you're only sending the test when you're not sure, then that means you've agreed that 10% of the time you're going to be wrong and you and your patients will just live with that rather than sending the test. So I certainly don't send it on everyone because those patients who say, no way, no how, and regardless of what the score, I'm not taking chemotherapy, or those patients who have other comorbidities that just give me the shivers and I can't ever imagine safely giving them chemotherapy, then the test would not be appropriate. So I do think patients need to understand what the test tells us and what it doesn't, and they need to agree that having the test would be useful in either making or confirming their decisions about chemotherapy or not to have chemotherapy. But if those things are true, then I think the safe practice is to send it on everybody. Now, where things get a little bit more controversial is the patient with a node-positive tumor. And we don't have the same kind of data on that situation, but we have been seeing some data now over the last couple of years, including some in December, looking at this issue. And we're seeing in practice more and more docs use Oncotype in some patients with node-positive tumors. What do we know about Oncotype and node-positive, and how do you utilize it in your own practice, if at all? So we actually had hints foreshadowing this even before Oncotype. In studies of node-positive patients that looked at degree of estrogen receptor positivity, that looked at HER2-positive versus negative, that looked at tumor grade by a central pathologist, or that looked at either S-phase or K67 as measures of proliferation, 
all of those studies pretty consistently suggested that they were a group of patients, even though they had nodal involvement, who had strongly estrogen-positive tumors with either low S-phase or low K67 or grade 1 tumors, who simply didn't seem to benefit from getting either chemotherapy at all or getting more aggressive chemotherapy in regimens that compared one chemotherapy regimen to another. So in that vein, the data is very consistent with the idea that if you have a tumor that is primarily hormone-sensitive, there is very little, if anything, to be gained by adding chemotherapy. And the fact that that tumor has made its way to the lymph nodes does not inherently change its biology. So certainly in those patients who have limited nodal burden, I'm very comfortable using the results of Oncotype. Though in reality, if you gave me a you know 53-year-old who had one positive node and a grade one 95% ERPR positive HER2 negative tumor four years ago, I would have been fairly ambivalent about treating that woman with chemotherapy even at that time. So it's not as big a leap for me to say now I have even more evidence that this just may not be someone who has anything to gain from chemo. So how about if the same younger woman in her 50s has four or five positive nodes, but she says, I really don't want to get chemo? So if she says, I really don't want to get chemotherapy, we simply don't have much data in that woman. In my heart of hearts, I suspect she's probably right. I think that Anatomy, whether it's tumor size or nodal burden, tells us about risk, but it's really the predictive capabilities or the biology that determines what therapies might alter that risk. And I think you actually saw those two things playing out in Kathy Albain's study as well. So, you know, if you tell me she's got five positive nodes and she says, I really don't want chemotherapy, you're going to have to take me kicking and screaming to chemotherapy and prove to me that I really need it. I would suspect she's probably right, and I honestly would be sending Oncotype to either prove to her that she really does need chemotherapy if her score is higher than we anticipate, or at least assuage my lingering comfort about not giving her chemotherapy. Can you talk a little bit about how the Oncotype test is actually done, what it's looking at, and how it compares to kind of other similar assays, one that a lot of people might have heard about as Mamaprint or others? So the Oncotype assay measures 21 different genes that are expressed in breast cancer. These are not genes that are inherited in families. Three of them are genes that we think about all the time, the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and HER2. The others have been grouped into those that are related to estrogen and estrogen signaling, those related to HER2 and HER2 signaling. There's a group that is related to proliferation of the tumor. There's a group that's related to invasion of the tumor, and then a few others that can't be neatly segregated into those groups. And five of those genes are what have been called as housekeeping genes. And that's simply a way of controlling for how much of the RNA were you able to extract from this paraffin-fixed tumor that's been sitting in a pathologist's basement for some period of time so that you can control expression level for how much stuff did you have to start with. It puts those expression levels through a complicated scoring system, which simply means they're not all equally important gives you a score that can go from 0 to 100. And patients understand very easily that in this test, low scores are where you want to be. 
And women who have low scores really don't need chemotherapy. Women who have high scores get a huge benefit from chemotherapy. And there's that pesky group of about a quarter of patients who have intermediate risk scores where we have uncertainty about the benefits of hormone therapy and adding chemotherapy to hormone therapy. Mammoprint is a little bit different. Mammoprint looks at 21 genes. The biggest difference is that Mammoprint requires fresh tissue. So the surgeon and the pathologist have to have decided before the patient goes to the OR, we're going to get this test. They have to take a piece, put it in liquid nitrogen, fresh freeze it to send it off for the assay. If the entire tumor is put in fixative, you can't go back. That also means that mammoprint is obtained before you know the nodal status of the patient, or at least they've had to save a sample for it before you know the nodal status. And in my mind, importantly, before the patient has had a chance to talk with their oncologist about what these test results mean, how they might influence our decisions, and is this a test that the patient would find useful in making her treatment decisions. The other thing is that we have a lot of very good information about mammoprint telling us about prognosis, but we haven't been able to apply mammoprint to a treatment situation to be able to say patients with these scores really need chemotherapy and here's their benefit, patients with these scores really don't. The other major difference is that mammoprint doesn't divide people into three groups. It divides them into two, low risk and high risk. So for all of those reasons, I don't find the mammoprint as useful. But the first year that Oncotype was available, all we knew was it predicting risk of recurrence. And I didn't order it on a single patient because I didn't know what to do with those patients who had high-risk scores. Maybe they need different hormone therapy instead of tamoxifen. Maybe they really needed chemotherapy. Maybe they just had bad breast cancer, and none of my therapies were going to impact their prognosis. I had the same issues with people on the low-risk score. You could look at them and say, yes, with tamoxifen, you have a low risk of recurrence. Maybe with chemotherapy, I could make a zero, and that would still be worthwhile for some patients. So something that just tells me about prognosis and risk is not so helpful for me. What I really need to be useful is something that tells me with a specific intervention, here's how this patient's future changes. A lot of docs tell us that the question comes out a lot Doc, what would you do if it were you or someone in your family? Did she ask you that? Do people who are going on this study ask you that? And I'm guessing your answer is yes. But, I mean, to me, I think about randomization between chemo versus not. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. So I have a lot of patients who have asked me that, whether it was in conjunction with the TaylorX trial or for whatever reason they weren't eligible for TaylorX and we were just getting the Oncotype. I can't think of anyone who asked me if I would... Actually, there's only one patient who asked me if I would be part of that trial. And my answer to those patients is very simple. I've spent my career trying to make the treatment for patients with breast cancer better. And everything that we know works came from a clinical trial and the women who are willing to be part of it. So it would make absolute sense to me if I were in that situation personally that I would continue to do that and I would be part of whatever trial I was eligible to be part of. But, you know, you, Mrs. Jones, have not spent your entire adult career focusing on treatment of breast cancer. So I don't know what my doing tells you anything about what you should do. The more common question I get asked, though, is with patients who have intermediate scores, is whether I would take chemotherapy or not. 
And I have a simple answer for them for that as well. You know, I have a wonderfully intelligent, delightful sister. And she and I would make absolutely, totally different decisions about this. There's no question our decisions would be different. And it's simply that we look at the world differently. You know, she went to Manhattan intentionally and called it vacation. (laughs) Why you would do that, I don't understand. (laughs) The same year she went to Manhattan, my husband and I went hiking in New Zealand for three weeks. And her response to that was, but there's nothing there. To which we said, well, in the first place, you're wrong. And in the second place, that was the whole point. They call it vacation for a reason. You have to actually vacate. So this is very much in that gray area where different women can look at exactly the same information, can understand it perfectly and equally well, and yet it may have dramatically different meaning to them about whether they should get chemotherapy or not. So I think my job as their oncologist is not to try to push them one way or another, but to try to make sure they understand the information as best they can and to help them come to some comfort with what's best for them. And I can usually, in talking to them, get a sense of which way are they leaning, usually by the questions they keep coming back to and revisiting. And I sometimes will stop and say, you know, I know you're struggling with this, but it really sounds to me like this just doesn't mean chemotherapies for you. Or you know, it really sounds like you need to get chemotherapy to be able to sleep comfortably at night. And that's sometimes very helpful in moving their thinking along. In case you're wondering, I wouldn't get chemotherapy and my sister would. You wouldn't? Get- I wouldn't, no. You would not? With an you- intermediate risk score? Mm-mm. Hmm. I'd have no trouble being randomized in the Taylor X trial, but... Outside of the trial with an intermediate score? Mm-mm. Well, I got to say... My sister would in a heartbeat. I mean, who knows? You know, we both have young kids. I mean, who knows what kind of button that might push. But I got to say, I'd be thinking about not getting chemo if I was node positive with a low recurrence score. Oh, if I had one positive node, I'd be demanding the test. <laughs> 